Well, you have your Bible open to John 20, and you know the passage that we read was about a very famous character in the Bible, and his name is, has come down to us as Doubting Thomas. Now, the name Doubting Thomas isn't uh, limited to just the Bible, because since this story, people have picked up on this name, Doubting Thomas, to refer to anybody who is of a kind of skeptical bent, somebody who says, hey, I'm not going to believe unless you present me with hard, cold facts, the evidence, that's a Doubting Thomas. And you've heard of Doubting Thomas, even if you haven't read the Bible or been familiar with the Bible. But many people don't realize about Doubting Thomas is that he started out doubting in this story, but he didn't end up that way. In fact, a more appropriate nickname for Doubting Thomas would be Believing Thomas. Because as the story ends, he said to Jesus, my Lord and my God, he ended with faith rather than doubt. There's another thing that many people don't think about when they think about this story, and that is that nearly everybody, in some form or another, stands in a very similar position to Thomas. And that's what makes this story so compelling for us. Because when we read the story, we can find ourselves right in Thomas's shoes and right in his, or sandals maybe, right in his circumstances and think, I can identify with this guy. I mean, after all, the, the claims that are being made about this man that was clearly crucified and buried are just unbelievable. And I have to have some evidence to back that up. Come on, give me something that I can see. Give me something I can feel. And I'm not going to just believe anything. Give me evidence in order for me to believe. We, we often find ourselves into a position, in a position just like Thomas. And that's what makes the story so compelling. That's what makes the story relevant for you this morning, because no matter who you are, no matter whether you have called yourself a Christian for some time, whether, no matter whether you've hopped on this live stream and, and you're just curious about uh, what is going on on the internet around Easter time, and you don't even believe in the resurrection as the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, this story is relevant to you because it raises this question. How does Jesus speak to someone or respond to someone who doubts that he rose from the dead? It matters for you this morning whether you believe that Jesus rose from the dead or whether you think, well, that's just the, uh, the stuff that religious people find comfort in, or it could be that you... Uh, you want to believe in the resurrection in order to be polite to religious people. Or maybe you believe that the resurrection is a kind of belief that somehow from the ashes of despair and sorrow will rise the spirit of hope and love. I was talking with someone a while ago after I had given a lesson on the resurrection, and I asked him point blank, right after I had given some proofs for the resurrection, some evidence for the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead, I said, so do you believe this? He said to me, well, I believe something happened. Are you the sort of person that believes just something happened? We don't know exactly what, but something happened. It really comes down to a matter of did Jesus rise from the dead or did he not? And will you believe that Jesus rose from the dead or will you not? And the question that this text raises is of, of incredible importance for all of us because it deals with this issue. How does Jesus respond to somebody like you? For those of you who are believers, how does Jesus respond when you find that voice of doubt nagging in the back of your mind? Is this real? How does Jesus respond to a skeptic? That's what this story is about. And there are three steps in the story. You can see them uh, very clearly throughout this text. Uh, there is Thomas's doubt. Uh, there is Jesus' invitation. 
and then Thomas's faith. And that's the way we're going to walk through this text, okay? So now you know where we're going. We have a mental roadmap for our journey ahead. As you, as you hang with me here as we walk through this text, we have, first of all, Thomas's doubt, Jesus' invitation to believe, and then Thomas's faith. So first of all, Thomas's doubt. You see in your text that Thomas expresses his doubt in two verses, verses 24 and 25 of chapter 20. So actually look at those verses so you can see what Thomas is saying. Thomas, one of the twelve, as I read earlier, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. That's Thomas's evidence. That's what he's confronted with. And now here's his response. He said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never, never believe. Now, this implies, of course, that you know something about Jesus' crucifixion. And that, was, that is that he was impaled on a cross. He, was, he had been flogged. He had been beaten. He had been punched in the face. He had been stripped of his garments. He had been mocked. Now he was put on a cross and, and he was hanging by his hands and feet in this agonizing position that was actually pretty typical as a Roman method of crucifixion. But just to guarantee that he was actually dead, one of the Roman soldiers who was on duty at the site of the execution took a spear, rammed it up into Jesus' side to make sure that the job was absolutely done. And that's what Thomas was referring to when he talked about the, the wound in his side. And Thomas said, unless I actually put my hand into that spear wound, I'm not going to believe. Now, what do you think about Thomas's objection there? What do you think about his, his doubt? Well, on the one hand, I think you could kind of identify with Thomas. After all, he wasn't there when Jesus first appeared to the rest of the disciples. Can you imagine the scene that just preceded this? So, there are the disciples, they're gathered in this room, Thomas isn't with them, and Jesus suddenly appears. This is the story that's, uh, that's recounted in verses 19 through 23 of John chapter 20. So, they're all there. The door is locked, but I don't think anybody can get through this door. And then suddenly Jesus comes right in there, and they are, are filled with wonder and astonishment because last they knew, Jesus was dead. He had died three days ago. And and, and they're filled with joy. Some are, are just stunned, no doubt. And after the, Jesus goes away, they look at each other and like, man, I'm so glad that we all got to see this. And then one's like, well, not everybody's here. Who's missing? Thomas. Where's Thomas? Well, we don't know why he was gone, but someone's like, we've got to go tell Thomas. I'm going to be the first to tell him. Another disciple says, come on, Peter, you're always the first one to tell everything. Give me a chance. Okay, let's all go tell Thomas. So they go tell Thomas. I mean, they're like, Thomas is not going to believe this. Well, little did they know how true that was. They come to Thomas and they, says, we have see, they say, we have seen the Lord. And then Thomas responds in this way, probably overcome by, by grief. I can't believe it. I cannot believe it. On first blush, Thomas's doubt seems to make sense. His, his criteria his test for belief seems uh, to be intelligent and sensible. After all, Jesus has been crucified, he's been beaten, he's been impaled, he's been flogged, he's been mangled, he's been buried. Now, what crucifixion has Thomas ever seen undone? I mean, what in Thomas's personal history would give any sort of uh, credence to the fact that a man crucified could come from the dead. Thomas probably had seen crucifixions before, or at least known of criminals who had been crucified. And under no circumstances had Tom ever known one. Thomas ever known one to come back to life. It's not like Thomas would say at the end of a week to his friend, "Hey, how, how many crucified criminals came back to life today?" His friend's like, "I think there were four. Tom's like, four. That's a good number. Good week. 
four crucified criminals come back to life. That never happened. Jesus, uh, Thomas's doubt is, is understandable. It seems to be sensible, even scientific. And also it seems to be intelligent. Notice what he requires for evidence. He doesn't just ask to see a living man, but he asks to see that living man. What specifically about that man does he want to see? He wants to see his wounds. Why his wounds? Because his wounds would be proof that the same man who hung dying on the cross was the same man who stood before him if he were really alive and not just some other person that looked a lot like Jesus. And Thomas, moreover, wanted to make sure because he understood sometimes his eyes could deceive him that these were no artificial wounds. These were no superficial scratches. No, these were deep wounds into which Thomas could put his hand. See, see Thomas's evidence seems to be really intelligent, really sensible. But, on further examination, is Thomas's skepticism so intelligent? Is his doubt so sensible? There's a problem with it. Because begin, to begin with, Thomas did have good reason for believing. Thomas's friends, his closest allies, these guys that have been, had been so close with him traveling with Jesus for the past three years, had they ever lied to him like this? Why, why would they say something like this unless there was some reason for believing it? Furthermore, if Thomas would have searched his memory, he would have remembered that Jesus himself said that the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be killed. And on the third day, Jesus said this. He is going to rise again. Did not Thomas have some evidence in the words of Jesus that the resurrection was true? You see, Thomas actually did have evidence, and it makes the test for Thomas's doubt appear to be less sensible, less intelligent. There's a second reason why these conditions are unreasonable. Suppose we take Thomas's tests for belief and apply them to what we believe. All right, think about this. Thomas said, unless I, unless I see with my eyes, unless I feel with my hands, I'm not going to believe. What if we applied that same criteria to other things in life? Unless I see a germ, I'm not going to believe it exists. Unless I see the distance of the earth to the sun, I'm not going to believe that it's what scientists tell me. Unless I see the continent of Africa, unless I hold the clods of dirt between my hands, unless I let the sands of the Sahara filter through my fingers, I'm not going to believe it exists. I mean, think about what it would be to apply the criteria of sight and feeling and touch to anything that we believe. I mean, think about the coronavirus. How many millions of people have put their lives on hold how many economies have come to a grinding halt all because of something that no one has actually that 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 few relatively speaking have actually experienced no doubt has it affected many many people but our responses to it are a matter of faith and authority of what people are telling us about what this could do if you were to picture if you can every belief that you hold everything that you think to be true and picture it to be like a big building. Now begin removing from that building every belief except those beliefs that you know because you've seen them or you've touched them. I wonder what would be left. I don't think there'd be even a shack big enough to live in. You see, so much of our reality is based on faith. Faith in what our parents told us, faith in authority, faith in what we read in the news. I mean, faith is the air that we breathe. And for Thomas to put these these tests for believability on anything he could see or touch is a, is a actually unreasonable criteria. 
Thomas has made the mistake that countless of others have made before him. And that is to apply a standard of what is to be believed in one area and not to others. So the problem, as it turns out, with Thomas is not a problem so much of evidence because he had it. The problem of faith does not hinge ultimately on evidence, a problem with evidence. It hinges on a problem in the heart. It is said that someone asked a very famous atheistic philosopher, suppose you were to stand before God on judgment day, and he were to ask you, why did you never believe in me? This eminent atheistic philosopher said, I would reply this, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. And yet, as the psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the skies are showing his handiwork. I mean, every day is pouring forth the speech. And what is the night bubbling with? It's bubbling with, with this truth. There is a God, and he's great. As the song says, there are some things, a colors that live in every hue Christless eyes have never seen. The, the problem is not so much a lack of evidence. The problem is with the heart. As it turns out, evidence abounds for the resurrection. I'll just name several pieces of the evidence for the resurrection. The fact that Jesus was buried. This is a historical fact. That Jesus' body was put into a tomb. It's one of the most well-attested facts in history. Jesus' body wasn't lost at sea. Jesus' body didn't disappear after he'd been wandering around in the desert somewhere and people said, well, I don't know where he is. That would have been easy to fabricate a resurrection account based on a body that was lost. But Jesus' body, the location of it was, was known. It was very close to the place where he was died. It was in the city at which he died. It access, many people had access to this. A second point of evidence is that Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of women in those days, the testimony of women would not have been accepted as legitimate testimony in the court of law. And yet the gospel writers, with this fragrance of authenticity, say, hey, it was women that first discovered the resurrected Christ. Early sources, their letters that were written that date, that date back to the first century, during the lifetime of those who saw Jesus alive, confirm that this is what happened. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says that the, the people that saw Jesus, many of those are alive today. Implication being, you could talk to them. You could ask them. And what about this? What about the establishment of the Christian church? Weeks, it was a matter of weeks after Jesus rose from the dead. It didn't take centuries for a legend to a, a, accumulate. But weeks after Jesus rose from the dead, the apostles preached to a crowd of people. And what was at the very center of their message? A mes message so radical and so true and so convincing it turned the world upside down. What was at the center of their message? It wasn't a message for political reform. It wasn't some sort of new idea as for a moral revolution. Here's how to live a more fulfilling life. No, at the very center of the proclamation of the apostles, weeks after Jesus had been crucified in Jerusalem, preaching to a crowd of thousands of people was this. Jesus is alive. It was a message that could have easily resulted in a laughing to scorn and a closing of that chapter of, of history in a way that nobody would have had to pay attention to except for this. He really was alive. And there are witnesses to it. Peter said this in Acts chapter 2, verse 32, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. 
So why is the case for the resurrection so often dismissed? It's because the resurrection does not just confront our system of beliefs. The reality of the resurrection doesn't just require that you open up into your, your, your mind the possibility that someone could, could, could defeat death. Resurrection is often dismissed because the resurrection itself requires not just a small segment of your life to change, but it requires everything. The implications are radical. <laughs> it confronts not just your mind, it confronts your entire person. It, it confronts your ambitions, it, it confronts your, your view of eternity, it confronts uh, an understanding of where you come from and where your purpose in life is. It, con- it, and it confronts who you should serve. The resurrection of Jesus isn't just a simple matter of saying, oh yeah, I, I think that I could allow, I think there's, I'm broad-minded enough, I think I'm, I'm open-minded enough to allow the fact that, that a man could rise from the dead. No, the resurrection means a complete confrontation of your entire person. Intellectually, emotionally, volitionally, every component of you is confronted by this fact. And so as I say, the resurrection and the, the objections to the resurrection are, are, are not evidential, but they're a matter of the heart. If this is true, it changes everything. So what does Jesus do to someone like this? My friends, how does Jesus respond to someone who is wondering... Did he really rise from the dead? That could be you this morning. It could be you as, as a believer. And, and, and the, these thoughts just bite away at your mind. Here's how Jesus responds. We see Thomas's doubt, but secondly, we see Jesus' invitation to believe. And we see this in verses 26 and 27. I'm going to read those verses to us. We looked at Thomas's doubt and the reason why he's doubting. There was sufficient evidence, yes, but it was a matter of the heart. Now here is Jesus' invitation to believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he turns to Thomas and he says, Put your finger here, see my hands, put out your hand, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. My friends, there is an invitation to believe, to faith. Now, this scene is so similar to the one that occurred earlier, where the disciples are in a locked room. They're, they're actually afraid. Uh, they have not been emboldened by uh, the message that Jesus has risen from the dead. They have not received the Holy Spirit yet. So they're, they're in a locked room. And there's one difference, though, and that is that Thomas is with them now. And Jesus comes. Jesus mercifully gives Thomas another chance to believe. But notice what is on display here in this second appearance of Jesus, in which now Thomas is present. We see, we see four things on display here. First of all, Jesus' peace. You see in verse 26, Jesus comes in and he says, Peace be with you. Second, we see Jesus' power. Where do you see Jesus' power in this? Well, the fact that the door was locked and Jesus got in. The the disciples actually thought they were locking people out. They couldn't lock Jesus out. That's a display of Jesus' power. So Jesus' peace and Jesus' power are on display. But there are a couple more things that are on display. The third thing we see here is Jesus' omniscience. You notice that when Jesus speaks to Thomas, he, he, he addresses the disciples in general when he says, peace be with you. And then he turns to Thomas specifically. And apparently, Jesus had been listening in on Thomas's conversation. Because he knew exactly what Thomas had said. 
Can you imagine the stunning realization to Thomas when he heard his own words coming back to him? When his own words expressing doubt that Jesus was alive, and now it comes to, as it, as it turns out, Jesus had not only been alive, but Jesus had been hearing the words of doubt that he had been speaking. And Jesus says, with graciousness, with compassion, he says, put your finger here and see my hands. To this doubting Thomas. He pulls aside his robe to reveal a deadly gash in his side. Put out your hand, Thomas. You can put it right in my side. That is omniscience. I mean, Jesus knew exactly what Thomas had said. And yet, even more stunning than Jesus' peace, and even more amazing than his power to come into a locked room and and even more amazing than his omniscience is something else that permeates this passage and that is this jesus love why he showed his love in two ways think of what he could have done to thomas he could have looked at thomas and said thomas when you will ever believe me how many times did i say i was going to rise from the dead How could you be so dense and dull? How could you disbelieve your friends? He could have chided and scolded Thomas for his his unbelief. And yet with amazing condescension, Jesus stoops to the level of Thomas's skepticism and says, Thomas, here's the evidence. He shows love in the fact that he pointed to his wounds, but there is an even more compelling and powerful way that Jesus shows love. Not just in pointing to his wounds, but in what his wounds pointed to. Isn't it ironic that the very thing that Thomas thought would be the criteria by which he could judge the the, the truth of Jesus' own words were his wounds And yet it was the wounds of Jesus that put Thomas on judgment. Thomas thought, I'm going to judge Jesus by his wounds. And Thomas suddenly realizes in the presence of the risen Christ that it is not me judging Jesus for his wounds. It is Jesus judging me by his wounds. What could have flooded Thomas's mind at the moment when Jesus pulled aside his robe to reveal that wound? Oh, what could have flooded his mind as he realized that standing before him was the risen Christ? I mean, I can think of all kinds of passages. These, the, the Old Testament rituals about the necessity of a spotless lamb to be slain on behalf of the sins of the people. What about the prophecy in Isaiah? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Thomas realized not just that Jesus was alive, but that the wounds he bore were for him. You see, it was not evidence that conquered Thomas's unbelief. Thomas had evidence. Others had evidence who chose to disbelieve. It was love. It was a sort of love that makes the highest human love look like a flickering candle next to the sun. It was a love that says, 
Doubting Thomas? I died for your doubting, Thomas. It's a love that invites faith. And this, in fact, is the very essence of faith. Faith does not come in the accumulation of evidence, though the evidence is there, because evidence can be ignored. How much light does a blind person need to see? The problem is not with the amount of light, but with the vision. How much evidence would it take for a person of a stubborn heart to see it is not a problem with the evidence, it's a problem with the heart. And it is love that invites the person to see and believe. And so what does doubting Thomas do? We see Thomas's doubt. We see Jesus' invitation. And finally, we see Thomas's faith. Now notice what Thomas says here. After Jesus invites his faith, Thomas answered him and said this, My Lord and my God. Now it's easy for us, the, the, the massive importance of this to just go right over our heads. But think about this. Thomas was a faithful Jew, which meant that absolutely central to his belief system was the fact that God is one. Every Jewish little boy and girl, as soon as they could understand the Hebrew tongue, would have learned these words from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord. They would have memorized the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the first of which is this. You will have no other gods besides me. So Thomas was a a strict monotheist, one God No other gods before him. And now Thomas, having grown up his entire life believing in only one God, is looking at a man bearing wounds, standing before him, and he says, without blasphemy, my Lord and my God. This does not mean that Thomas abandoned his monotheism It means that Thomas's understanding of who God was came to light. And that is what it means to be God, means to be God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And what it means for God to be God means that God the Father sends his Son to the world so that he can bear the sacrifice, the penalty for sin, so that he could be wounded for the transgression, so that he can rise again, so that he can invite unbelieving people, doubting Thomases to believe in him as he stands before them bearing his wounds of love for them. That's what it means to be God. That's why Thomas could as a strict Jew uncompromising in his monotheism see this man before him and say you are my God because he was it changed everything for Thomas the resurrection is so much more than a weighing of evidence for or against a historical fact that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead it is so much more it puts every human being at a crossroads It puts every person at a point of either faith or unbelief. Either I'm going to accept this man who stands before me, who claims to have conquered death, who bears wounds that were for me, or I'm going to walk out of the room and say, I will never believe it. You cannot be neutral to the resurrection. 
You cannot stand before a, a risen Christ who bears wounds for you. You cannot confront the evidence of the resurrection and say, I'm neutral to that. No, you have to either say, no, I don't believe it, or yes, this person demands my all. Either the universe is a closed box, dark and motionless, or there is a God, and he has punctured this closed box, and he has invaded history, and he has sent his beloved son, Jesus Christ, to conquer sin and death on our behalf. Either Jesus' death means that I'm a sinner and accountable to holy God, or it doesn't mean that at all. Either Jesus' resurrection means that I must trust him, or his death means nothing. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, if the man who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, if that man did rise from the dead, then it means that a new age has begun to dawn in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A new age in which the lame walk and the blind see and the mute talk in which the old pattern of death and sin is undone through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It changes everything. You can't be neutral to it. But it also means that there will be a day of judgment because this is what Paul says when speaking to another skeptical crowd on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17. He says that God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And how are we going to know that there is such a judge? And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Thomas couldn't be neutral to this. You can't be neutral to this. He can either look at these wounds, at this love, at this light, and say, I want nothing to do with it. He can rush to the door, unbolt it, go out into the darkness, or he can fall on his face and say, my Lord and my God, but you can't be neutral. How much did this change, Thomas? And here I wish that Thomas's name were not Doubting Thomas. The Bible doesn't tell us this, but very, very ancient church tradition tells us how far Thomas took this, my Lord and my God. He took it beyond his Jerusalem. He took it beyond the borders of Judea. He took it beyond the borders of the Roman Empire. Church tradition tells us that doubting Thomas went all the way to India with this message, my Lord and my God. Tells us that he founded seven churches there and that there, because of his faith, he was killed for his Lord and his God. That's how much the resurrection changes. It changes a life. It changes everything. My friend, you cannot be neutral to this. Because Jesus has a word of glorious promise for those who believe. And that's why I've called this sermon the blessedness of believing. Because Jesus says to Thomas in verse 29, Have you believed because you have seen me? And then he pronounces a blessing for all those who are willing to look at this crucified Christ and also say, my Lord and my God, blessed, happy, boundlessly happy are those who have not seen and yet believed. Why so happy? Because we find in this resurrected Christ one who can do 
for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And that is rescue us from our sin. That is bear the judgment for the sin that I deserve and the sin that you deserve. That's because we find in Jesus the only one that can bring us out of the, the, the mire of darkness and transfer us into the kingdom of light because we see in Jesus our hope or everything. Blessed are those who believe. That can be you, my friend. What if you don't believe in the resurrection? Let me ask you to consider this. Are your objections to the resurrection really because of the lack of evidence? Or is it because of what it demands of you as a person? There's only one thing that will overcome that, and that is that this resurrected Jesus loves you. He died on the cross for sinners like you. His death and his resurrection means that you are more sinful than you ever imagined, but you are also more loved than you ever dared to hope. And so I give you the same invitation Jesus gave Thomas. Don't be doubting, but believe. And with that belief, the gates of joy will come undone and flood your soul with light. For those of you who do believe, do you sometimes doubt? You might say, hey, if I had a label, they'd call me Doubting Thomas. If I had a label, oh man, there's so many names that people could call me. Lustful, anxious, hateful, gossiping, backbiting, jealous, judgmental. Oh, what tag could you receive? You know, there's only one eraser strong enough to rub away that tag, and that's mercy. There's only one pen that's strong enough to rewrite a new name, and that's grace. By the grace of God, your sin, even your sin habits, can be undone. I've been reading John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. It's a classic that unfortunately has been very often ignored in our day and age the central figure of that is christian he's on a journey to the celestial city heaven but on his way he has met many challenges many struggles and he comes to a house where he's speaking with three good and beautiful women named prudence piety and charity and they're asking him about his journey so far and prudence and christian are having a conversation and and prudence asks christian because Christian had come from this evil city of destruction that was doomed. And she asked him, Christian, don't you often think about the city that you came from? Christian said, oh, yes, I do. But whenever I do, I, I'm so ashamed of the things I loved. She said, are you often tempted to think about those things? Christian said, yes, I'm often tempted to think about those things. She said, do you ever find victory over your, your thinking about those things, those old sin habits, those old loves and idols? And Christian said, yes, sometimes I do have victory over those. Oh, and when I do, it's like golden hours of delight. Prudence asked Christian, what do you find helpful in overcoming those sins that you feel tempted by? that weight to pull you back into affections for the things of the city of destruction. And Christian said to Prudence, when I think about the cross and what Jesus did for me, that does it. When you think about the cross, what Jesus did for you, 
when you see those wounds, not as the criteria to satisfy your skepticism, but as that which says, I love you, that will do it. That will overcome your doubt. Jesus is alive. He invites you to believe in him.